Non-rock-a-boatus must stop. I don't want to rock the boat. I want to sink it. Are you going to bark all day, little doggy, or are you going to bite? Brett, delusional is okay in your worldview. I'm an animal. You don't chastise chickens for being delusional. You don't chastise pigs for being delusional. So you calling me delusional using your worldview is perfectly okay. It doesn't really hurt. <laughs> she hung up on me. Yeah! Yes! What? What? Desperate times call for faithful men and not for careful men. The careful men come later and write the biographies of the faithful men, lauding them for their courage. Go into all the world and make disciples. Not go into the world and make buddies. Not to make brosives. Right. Don't go in the world and make homies. Right. Disciples. I got, yeah. I got a bit of a jiggle neck. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke, Pastor. When we have the real message of truth, we cannot let somebody say they're speaking truth when yeah. they're not. Take an amazing journey to a place that will blow your mind and move your heart so you will never be the same again. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple babbler. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in outer, outer, ugh, excuse me, utter darkness, not outer darkness. An inheritance gained hastily in the beginning will not be blessed in the end. Do not say I will repay evil weight for the Lord and he will deliver you. Unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord and false scales are not good. That is Proverbs 20, 17 to 23 what is up everyone welcome back to another episode of apologia radio pastor jeff is out of town this week and so i am back in the saddle we have this is an unusual lineup this is definitely a first lineup so on my right here i got uh what are, what are they calling you extra time benegas they call me I? extra time but i was thinking it'd be okay. more appropriate to call me extra innings because I'm a baseball fan. Okay. And so I was thinking it'd just be You're more not allowed to name yourself. Extra. Right. Well, that's the thing. I was telling Jeff that you guys, I feel as though you have I these, didn't name myself. Who named you? Jeff. Okay. Well, maybe I'm wrong. But I do feel like Jeff named himself. He says that it was people in high school, but yeah, I didn't call him the ninja. I never called him the ninja. Personally, um, I don't know anybody who calls him the ninja. I don't either. Yeah. Just himself. Right. Yeah, so I'm here um, co-hosting here with Luke. Um, I'm getting another of, uh, I guess, what, my 15 minutes of fame here on Apology Radio. Yeah, dude, maybe even 16, if, and you're, if you're lucky. Yeah, at some point, maybe I can host again. I don't know. Let us know. Do you like it when I host? Do you like it when Luke hosts? Do you like it when Jeff hosts? Um, well, I can tell you half the time I'm hosting, people tune in and they're like, oh, Jeff's not on there, and they tune in. I'm like, oh, oh right yeah. Right no, I, 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 can, I can understand that. But uh, we love Jeff. Uh, unfortunately, he can't be with us today. Like you said, he's out of town. But I'm excited for uh, this episode. I think we have some pretty cool stuff lined up. Yeah, so I'll just I'll just get right into it. I We actually, I had another guest lined up uh, this week, and they had to cancel on Monday. and um, And so... Uh, it worked out well because last week, uh, our friend Gabe Wrench from Cross Politic and Fight Left Feast, he had messaged me and was like, "Hey, um, I got this awesome dude that I'm representing. He's going to be in in Phoenix next week. 
um, he has time for an interview. Can you interview him? At the time, I was like, oh, I'm already booked, unfortunately. But it worked out well. The timing was well. And so uh, we just literally just met. <laughs> he just This is Nate Fisher, everyone, by the way. Um, super excited for the show. Um, so, yeah, I, today I'm hoping to – Nate's kind of a you, – you're you know a lot about a lot. There's a there's a, there's a lot he's I know he's, something about a lot <laughs> something about a lot so um but there's some things that he's some topics that he's uh, very keen on like woke economics is what I want to kind of start with but uh, so yeah so Nate welcome um, just tell us about yourself and what you're up to and we'll go from there well thanks and great to be here glad to uh, glad the timing worked out glad I could join for this so a couple of things I'm involved in and. Uh, actually been focusing these in some ways I jumped in I felt like I jumped into a movement started a lot of things got involved in a lot or threw a lot out there and have been actually focusing on the things that clearly uh, fit from a product standpoint so new founding principal business my background first of all is business I uh, I was in business for about eight years before I got into the space which is really at the intersection of of business and uh, in the world we're in here the uh, you could call it the Christian and political world. And uh, my principal organization is New Founding, which is a venture firm focused on backing, building, and investing in companies that are act- that are at the intersections of these worlds. Increasingly, there's an opportunity for uh, Christians to build businesses that capitalize on, in many cases, an alienated customer base. A lot of people who have been offended by mainstream brands, a lot of people who want something different. And that's been a really growing movement over the last couple of years. And we are focused on that at the venture level. So we work with those companies. We advise them. We have a lot of connections in the space. We understand We understand the moment. We understand a lot of the trends. We understand a lot of the, the sort of paradigm shift happening and use that both to identify opportunities and to uh, and to work with and guide companies there. And New Founding does a couple other things. It does talent placement, where we'll help people get out of woke companies into non-woke companies. That's still a sort of an earlier stage product, but at the same time, there's enormous demand for that. Uh, probably at this point, more on the talent side, there's a lot of people in our network. Uh, increasingly, we're out there working with companies. We do that sort of engineer, professional, executive level roles. So our focus is really helping uh, helping move often the sort of people that smaller businesses couldn't have attracted uh, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, those people are now ready to move. So that's that's a big part of it. And then uh, finally, American Reformer. So this is a nonprofit that we founded alongside New Founding. And in many ways, if you're building anything in venture, if you're building businesses, it's essential that you have a vision of what you're building to, or at mm-hmm. least some guiding principles. And the dominant ones in Silicon Valley are not good. That's a big part of the problem. And uh, unfortunately, I think the evangelical world is uh, its focus has not as strongly as it should be, I think, been an alternative positive vision. So American Mm -hmm. Reformer was founded to founded it with Aaron Wren. And uh, the goal is draw on historical Protestant cultural and political thought and really restore those in the church today. And then Similarly, go on the offense to actually fight for yeah. Christian institutions. I think there's a, a tendency to abandon institutions as they go, as they drift to the left, as happened throughout American history. Uh, our view is we shouldn't just reflexively abandon and, and leave and start a new one. It's actually good to have institutions that, that Christians control. And if we've 
if, if we built something, if there's a Christian college, then actually, uh, if it's going in the wrong direction, figure out what the playbook looks like to actually uh. try to bring it back, to work with them, either, either sort of positively offering vision or perhaps organizing people to actually push back. So American Reformer, and then American Reformer has a journal. That's probably where it'd be best known for most people. Is okay. We write a lot of articles on these topics. You could think of it as roughly in the same category as... Uh, you can think of it as a Protestant first things. You could think of it in some ways in the same category as a gospel coalition, although with a very different uh, viewpoint on that. But uh, that's been a, uh, a great organization. It's had some great leaders. Josh Abatoy is running that, and that's uh, that's grown a lot over the last couple of years. Awesome. I, I don't want to get too far into this too fast, but I, I, I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, positive alternatives, um, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's you know, we, so many, so many Christians are like, Oh, you know, this company's doing this, this company's doing that. And we just kind of pull away from those and, and abandon those, which isn't necessarily the wrong answer, but you're right in that there's not been a, you know, enough Christians saying, well, why don't we start something that is positive, that is based on scripture, that is Christian. Um, and we definitely need more of that, especially in the business world. So I, I appreciate, um, I appreciate you you're you coming from that that direction for sure um so i know before we get too far i know isaac really wanted to talk about some of your your upbringing and, yeah. and your background so i'll let you right because i was thinking where i wanted to kind of at least go with the conversation for me a lot of the stuff i think that you're the some things you know about a lot of things okay some of those things you definitely know more about it than a lot of us do um and so for me when i was listening especially to you especially me um but I was thinking, uh, what are some things that I can contribute to this conversation? <laughs> okay. Um, not necessarily contribute, but things that I'd like to hear. And because I was, I was listening to an interview that you were on recently, and you mentioned your, your upbringing, that you're, um, you're homeschooled. Um, as I heard you talk, I, I honestly, I was like, I, I like the way this guy thinks. I think it's a healthy way for Christians to think. And my question was, your upbringing, that type of cultivation, was there anything that you can remember that had a significant impact on you and what kind of sets you in this path as far as how you see the world from a Christian perspective? Yeah, so I, I've given huge credit to my mother, who was an early, one of the early homeschool, I could say pioneers, certainly I started in the... I think around the late 80s, 89 or 90, which was was early. And her approach to homeschooling was one that was, she used a curriculum called Konos, which which sort of was built on this idea that God is at the the top of everything and every subject is is shaped through a Christian, uh, Christian worldview. And uh, it was also in some ways a sort of multidisciplinary approach to learning a lot of things. There were, uh, we would we would touch on a lot of subjects together. And so what I think that did is it was, it was in some ways the opposite of a very memorization-based approach uh, that you see in, in yeah. a lot of schooling or a very segmented, discipline-specific approach. And it was something that I think helped appreciate relationships between different disciplines, yeah. broader themes across that. And I think that, was, I think that was certainly that approach. That's also, I think, the way my mind naturally works. So... Uh, I tend toward, I would say I'm not great at sort of specific memorization, but I, I do look at things 
uh, from a mental model level sort of and, and learn a model and then see the ability to apply that to another model. And what I would say is that that's very helpful in a time like we're in where there's a, a lot of paradigm shift happening. There's a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of things changing and the old models don't work. And, uh, and I think that, uh, I, I think the, so I think it was the approach of homeschooling. I also think it was a very, it was actually a, a, an approach that involved just a lot of freedom. I mean, we probably, I, I think studied about three hours a day and then would run around in our woods. I was in upstate New York. We had six acres of mostly swampland and brother about my age, uh, sister a little bit younger. And it was sort of a paradise for mm. running around and declaring wars on each other and <laughs> all that stuff. And, and I think that actually, you know, too much rigid studying, I think is not conducive to, it sort of stultifies the mind actually in many ways, or it can. I mean, there's people sure. who are, there's people who learn well that way. Sure. I, I think I benefited from something that was pretty open in that approach. So, um, what we find ourselves today, um, you mentioned this kind of paradigm shift. Um, we were before the show talking about um, the negative world. Um, so a couple of things. Can you kind of lay that out as far as that that um, that paradigm shift as far as the uh, – I forgot you mentioned it as far as neutral, yep. negative world. But um, how do you see education playing a part in the paradigm shift? Like I don't know if you can kind of sure. So the framework, the the negative world framework, was introduced by Aaron Wren, who co-founded American Reformer with me, and really inspired uh, a lot of the the vision for what needed to happen there. And Aaron, uh, Aaron, sort of what made him famous uh, in in the space that he's uh, he became well known in is this this concept, this framework of how pre and he sort of roughly says pre ninety four. Our society was a positive society for Christianity. It was mm. viewed positively. If you're a public figure, if you're a figure at all, it was viewed yeah. positively for you to be a Christian. And uh, certainly, that was the era where there was a plausible claim to a moral majority. That we actually were on the, the conservatives were a majority in the country. It was a, it was a, a world where even if you weren't a very good Christian, if you're running for sure. elected office, you would pretend to be a good Christian. And uh, then what Aaron says is the the sort of starting around 94 up through about 2014 was what he called the neutral world okay. where the world was neutral toward Christianity and uh, they'll reason with you. They'll treat you respectfully. Uh, it was the world where Keller's model really became prominent where Keller, Tim Keller would, uh, would be winsome and he would winsomely engage people and they would respect for the New York times could give him a respectful interview and talk to him and, Engage, and they don't necessarily believe it. And there's not necessarily sort of a, a a need to pretend to be a Christian if you're running for office, as an example. But it's not a plus or a minus. And then, and, and so much of I think the evangelical model, the the dominant model in a lot of institutions we live in, was shaped during that neutral world. Uh, Keller's influence being one example, but many many other successful institutions grew out of that. And what we're in. Uh, as Aaron says, around 2014, really, I think Obergefell is the best measure of that, uh, is a world that is sharply negative to Christianity, mm -hmm. fundamentally. If you are an Orthodox Christian, you will, it doesn't matter how nice you are, how winsome you are, how reasonable you are, you will be, uh, you'll be regarded as hateful for that. You will be treated as, uh, it will be a liability. And in many ways, even though that's about eight years, nine years ago, nine years ago now, 
I don't think that the model for the church in that world in America has been well developed. I mean, that's a pretty sharp departure from what really was decades and decades, at least, uh, of that sort of positive world mentality, and then and then this neutral world. So you have this paradigm shift where the world's become hostile to Christianity. With that, I think there's sort of an implicit there is a sense of actually a, a cultural revolution because so much of our culture was shaped by Christianity and was influenced by Christianity. So if yeah. you reject Christianity, you really need to reject uh, many, many, many other elements of our culture, elements of our society, elements of our law. Uh, it, it's become something that's sort of starkly illiberal in a sense. So yeah. from a political standpoint, during the neutral world, it's it, there was a broad sort of there was a broad valuing by the church of liberal norms and like classical liberal uh, norms following rules of free speech, following rules like that, because they protected us. Uh, I think now we're seeing a world where uh, people are becoming skeptical of whether those are enough when corporations will censor you for mm. your Christian viewpoints, when, uh, when essentially you'll have the entire society going against you or a large share of dominant society going against you. So that's a that's a shift that has profound implications across business, across politics, across Christianity and how do how does the church and and particularly how do Christians respond to that world is yeah. the big question that we are uh, working on addressing. So someone in the chat asked what happened in 94. Now I'm a few years older than you guys. So I was 13 in 94. Uh, that was a year in- year into uh bill clinton's presidency i mean i i remember that shift i'm old enough that i remember feeling that shift um so i want you to answer that question more thoroughly but i i I remember things you know and it's funny because now like now looking back at some of the stuff that clinton did which seems so extreme then is just this seems so tame compared to what you know biden's regime is doing but um so anyways why why 94 what was why was there such a shift um during that time so that's less i again aaron wren was the one who developed yeah. this and so i don't want to uh speak too strong i think that's a little rougher of a one than a Bergefell was a very clear event sure but i think it was what you see during clinton's era I, mean, I think sometime around then don't ask don't tell came out that's a great uh, example of you're moving from one where society acknowledges that there is a norm yeah. and a violation of that norm, and they're willing to enforce that to one where yeah. uh, we, we uh, at the very least, we sort of live and let live to some extent. And uh, again, I was, uh, I think I was nine or 10 at that, that age and a very sheltered homeschooler in some ways. <laughs> so uh, I may not have, uh, may not have seen those patterns, but I would say that was a, a broader one. That would happen more and more in different sure. cities and things. Uh, probably some cities were much Keller, for instance, already been in New York. And I think that was well, well along by that time. Other parts of the country were probably slower. So I think it was more of a it was more of a sort of rough inflection point, whereas yeah. I think you saw in the around 2014, around a couple of years there, really a sharp change at many, many. I mean, I even talked to people at law school, people who had been at the same law school I had been at, and they they said there was sort of a, a sharply a sharp turn against conservatives mm. during that point. Mm. It became a much more intolerant place. Did you want to add some more questions? No, I, and I don't. I don't know if this is, and like you said, maybe your uh, specific area, but I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts. Um, do you see that the that theologically the church had something to do with that? I mean, looking back and kind of just what you studied now 
outside of being, let's say, kind of that sheltered homeschool schooler, um, was there something theologically? So like, let's say we move into that neutral, that neutral realm. Was there something theologically that got us there as a whole? I know you mentioned kind of Calder and that influence, but I think he started, he planted his church in New York, I think in 88. Um, was there something already brewing theologically that moved us into to the neutral realm? And then my next question would be, when it was neutral, was there something the church could have done to then prevent it from going into the negative? So these are hard, hard counterfactuals. And I, I would be, I, I can't say anything with confidence here. What I will say is, I don't think Keller moved us to the neutral. In many ways, what what this refers to is really how the society treats Christians uh, rather than how Christians behave. So Keller's model, I think, was a natural outgrowth in a society that already viewed Christians that way. Uh, he was doing it in a place where he was it was not even a center of influence of Christianity. I think the if I had to if I had to, to guess, and again I. The biggest challenge I think the evangelical church has had in many ways is a fairly shallow, uh, a, a shallow and very personalized, individualized view that has prevented it from uh, substantively engaging politics and culture. And so uh, you look at a lot of the criticisms of, uh, I was just talking to someone actually who was involved in one of these large moral majority organizations, and his point was uh, they were... Uh, criticizing Bill Clinton is he can't vote for Bill Clinton because he's immoral. Obviously, change your opinion on Trump. Yeah, I would say the, the position on Trump actually reflects a much more sophisticated and traditionally Protestant political culture where your vote is a prudential decision given the options in front of you. Uh, whereas against Bill Clinton, it was sort of framed in a very moralist way. Well, that's very easily exposed to charges of hypocrisy if anything happens. Uh, so I think that that sort of more moralist approach was a uh, it was not a strong uh, foundation for Christianity to defend the goodness of its norms. Another example given is why uh, he said something like, why should I why should gay marriage be illegal? And it's because the Bible prohibits it. Well, I uh, Bible prohibits a lot of things and they're not some are illegal, some are not illegal. And uh, again, I think that it was not a uh, there was not a well-developed uh, polit- Christian political philosophy of how you're going to approach a lot of these these real questions of governing. And again, when you have when you when you have something like that, it's just not a it's not a serious contender to uh, d- defend the standard, uh, defend essentially its role as the norm setter in society. Right. So you went to uh, Calvin College, and um, I know you you have uh, some thoughts as far as kind of where where that institution went. Is that kind of reflective of kind of like what you're referring to when it comes to? Yes, and that's actually a really good. I, that's probably the bigger issue to bring up, and I think that Calvin reflects Calvin's ills were pervasive ills in the church that reflect certainly why it uh, lost following the neutral world during the neutral world approach. Calvin was a place that was built on this uh, Christian reform, Dutch background, Dutch reform background, uh, 
just deep intellectual tradition. One of the great intellectual traditions, the reform tradition fundamentally is the tradition that founded the greatest, the sort of most elite institutions in our society today, Harvard, Yale. Mm. And yet there was a profound lack of self-confidence at Calvin. And it was sort of a reflexive lack of self-confidence. You could see it in our background. We don't want to be across the board. There was the sense that we don't want to be like those sort of narrow parochial Christians uh, that reflect our the, the background, the, the sort of conservative background of the denomination. Uh, they wanted to seem reasonable to mainstream academia. Uh, mainstream academia is not reasonable. They reject God. They reject all sorts of things. And trying to seem reasonable to them just led to a lack of self-confidence at Calvin. Mm -hmm. So I think you had a, uh, you saw that in many evangelical institutions, particularly the colleges. And uh, when you have that lack of self-confidence, that loses out to a very, very self-confident and assertive left. I mean, the wokes will assert their views absolutely unquestionably and demand that you you, you mm -hmm, agree yeah. with them. And meanwhile, you have these Christians who are uh, constantly cavitying everything they say. They're right. they're throwing their own ancestors under the bus. Right. Uh, and uh, Calvin was a little ahead of the curve over compared to many evangelical institutions, but I mm -hmm. uh, I think reflected that so, viewpoint. So um, so w w could we be confident in saying that? Maybe what moved us into that that neutral round was not to stand firm on our convictions as Christians, yeah. and then what's brought us into the to the negative is that during that neutral time, the, the same thing. It just we're not willing to just be blatantly Christian. There, there's a, yeah. a qualification, like you said. There's a winsomeness uh, as far as trying to, you know, um, operate within certain boundaries. That let's say the the left or, or the, the the worldly system allows us to operate in. But it's interesting to me because a lot of Christians, like today we have a certain boundary that the, that the world has established for us. So when I say world, I say the worldly system. Like let's say if you want to call it the left, whatever it may be, any, any anti-Christian mindset, they establish for us a certain boundary for us to kind of operate within. Huh. And we're okay and as long as we kind of stay within those boundaries – a lot of times we don't want to go outside those boundaries because if we do, they're going to think of us a certain way. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it's, it always intrigues me that Christians don't understand that those boundaries are just going to continue to get smaller and smaller. At some point, there's going to be a line that's going to be drawn that even the people that we could say that are kind of giving into the culture are going to have to take a stance because it's right. only going to become narrower and narrower. And I see kind of that, what you're saying in that kind of period of time was just not standing on Christian convictions to just say, hey, I'm a Christian. This is my heritage. This is what the, what the, what the Word of God says. Um, of course, we, we're always uh, very careful to be labeled as like fundamentalists. But in a sense, there is a fundamental belief that we have as Christians and to kind of stand firm on that. I, I do see a shift, and I don't know if you see this too, but even with the things you're doing and you're talking about some of the alternative approaches, is that kind of what we're getting back to is just we're strictly Christian in the sense of the fundamental sense. And we're going to stand on that, that, that ground. So what it certainly, what it certainly is to me is a rejection of the line that is set by non-Christians by the secular world we no longer accept the boundaries of acceptable discourse. Mm. And that, I think, has been one of the governing principles of uh, American reformer. 
I, I would say I, I don't know that everyone, I don't know that winsome, winsomeness is a stance and a tone and you're trying to be reasonable. Mm-hmm. It's less about, I, I think you can be winsome and you can be extremely orthodox right. and you can yes. stand firm. Yeah. Uh, I, I would view whether to be how winsome versus let's say boldly prophetic or mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. Uh, how aggressive I, uh, to be somewhat of a sort of a, a tactical decision. I don't mm-hmm. think it's good, right or wrong. I think that you look at examples in the Bible and there are plenty of examples of, of both approaches being taken depending on the context. Right. It's sort of, a, it's, a, it's a tactic. Uh, whether you let your, uh, whether you let your uh, discourse be governed by the boundaries set by secular society mm-hmm. is a very different story. Mm-hmm. So you could be winsome and you could be orthodox and many were, right, right. Uh, and you're not going to compromise. I, I, I would say largely, I think Keller fell into that category. Uh, I think many of Keller's progeny uh, who followed that uh, actually, they, dri- they, they, they drifted much further mm-hmm. and they, they sort of emphasized the non-conflict part. But I think the point, the bigger point about the negative world is in a negative world, being winsome is not going to be enough to keep right. you in a, right. in a more neutral world. You can actually, by being winsome, potentially stay uh, stay within the sort of boundaries of discourse. Now that circle's gotten a lot smaller, and it doesn't matter what your tone is. Right. If your view is many orthodox I mean, even Christian just views, the authority of scripture. Yeah, you're going to get rejected. So I think I, that's sort of a strategic pers- uh, point, but I think it's very significant. Once you're out of that box, once you're saying things that are going to be labeled a, a racist, a sexist, whatever, all those things, I mean, basically, that, that's how you're punished for stepping outside of that mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. bound of acceptable discourse. Mm-hmm. The Overton window would be what uh, what we often call it. Then, uh, then there's a very different calculus over even what tone is going to be the effective one to get through. So uh, why sacrifice clarity for... Uh, winsomeness, for instance, if you're going to be uh, labeled a racist anyway. And right. so that's where homophobe, all that stuff. So uh, that's where I think that we, we need to reevaluate. And, and I don't think there's a clear answer. Like, doesn't mean you go out necessarily, you can stand on the word of God. It doesn't mean you necessarily go out and sort of stand on the street corner and yell at everyone that they're going to hell. Uh, everyone who looks possibly like their lifestyle conflicts with Christian principles. Mm-hmm. But I, but a much more assertive, much more prophetic approach might be might, might be the valid one. I also think there's a lot of soul search. There's a lot of question, intellectual questions of why did we? Your question is the big one. I can't answer that easily. Uh, why did we move from positive to neutral, neutral to negative? Uh, but obviously, there were obviously th- there were things that we did that we want to reconsider that are traditional cr- norms of how Christians engage that we want to reconsider. So a lot of what we're looking at is is sort of outside the that Overton window in terms of of strategy and tactics, in terms of range of thought. Do we need to reconsider our alliance with classical liberalism to some extent? Like, is this sort of idea of a neutral public order where uh, neutral public square where where Christians have a sort of role? Is that necessarily the right paradigm if that failed to protect uh, many of the norms that we have? Right. And so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of fruitful debate happening over both. Uh, both th- that theological stance toward things like politics and culture, and then the, the the question of how bold and direct to be. Yeah. So I actually I have some thoughts. I, I appreciate it. you got me thinking. I have some thoughts on your question. I think again, living through that, being twelve when Clinton got elected, and kind of you know becoming a man through this, 
neutral time period we're talking about. Like, mm-hmm. I, I think part of the problem was Christians in the church. I mean, this is how I was raised is, like you said, up until that point, Christianity was kind of considered the majority and even like conservative Republican Party, like you expected them to be running on Christian morals, you know, biblical principles. And I think as the, I think the church just got too, um, too confident in the, in conservatism, right. In the Mm -hmm. Republican party. And we stopped being prophetic, like you're talking. Um, and so when we kind of hit this neutral spot, starting with, with Clinton, I think, I, I mean, I remember as a, as a teenager thinking like, uh, well, we're, it's, you know, the Republicans, Republicans are going to come to the rescue. We're going to fix this, you know, like, you know, is you know, we just got to wait this out or whatever. Like, there was too much faith in the Republican party, not enough in Christ, not enough in God's word. And, you know, so I think that's what kind of led into that neutral thing is the church became literally became neutral. Like you're saying, and, and, and instead of being prophetic, instead of, you know, proclaiming Christ and, and him crucified and his law, um, we just kept waiting for the Republican party to fix things, you know, and then George uh, Bush gets elected after Clinton and, you know, he kind of, and, and, and this obviously isn't all on the presidents, you know, but um, just I'm just trying to think through this. It lines up well with the presidents. But I remember, like, he kind of corrected some of that stuff that Clinton had done. But I can remember being like, man, he didn't, you know, for someone that claims to be a Christian and is a Republican, like, they didn't, he didn't really stand for things mm-hmm. like I thought he should have. Um, you know, and then, of course, we get Obama. And then Trump and then Trump even, you know, corrected a lot of things economically. Right. Um, but morally, you know, no. And um, well, the, some things, yes. But, you know, you see what I'm getting at. Yep. And like, again, we're not standing on God's word. We're not being prophetic. We're relying on the Republican Party to fix things. Um, and so, you know, now we are where we are with with this regime and. Um, so I, th- I think that to me, that makes perfect sense what you're saying and just with the church and, and so now we're in this place where like, like you're saying, if we're going to get out of this, this box that they've placed us in, we have to stand on God's word. We have to be prophetic. Um, and we have to speak into the culture. Otherwise, you know, they're just going to, this box is going to get smaller and smaller. So I, I really appreciate it. I, hopefully that kind of answers it. I think yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, no, um, and of course, kind of segue into, to new founding, um, well, you, you kind of mentioned it at the beginning too, as far as kind of the approach, but can you kind of go into that a little bit more, just kind of based on what we've said, what is new founding doing now in this, the, the, the negative realm? So as a venture org, we work with, we work with new companies. We work with ventures. It's a pretty broad, broad term, but we'll work with companies that are, that are doing something where there's a specific political, political or cultural angle or a way in which our viewpoint has a significant or uh, significant impact in the company. So uh, that's not just a company with a Christian owner, for instance. A company with a Christian owner might be great, but if they just make widgets, we don't necessarily have a ton to add to change how they do business. But if it's a company that is explicitly selling to customers on the right, people who have been alienated, uh, there's a huge customer base open. Understanding the themes that resonate with them today is a big part of that. Uh, we will work with those companies. We're actually starting We're starting a company. We're starting a few. We've started a few companies uh, in that space. And then I think there's really, uh, there's a couple of 
key differentiators here in how we approach that. Uh, and that can include just going through that could be consumer products you want to buy from companies that don't hate you. Uh, it could be business services or business software. You really, as a if you're a, a Christian organization, conservative organization, or just someone who's doesn't want to be subject to someone else's rules, you really need services from a company that is not going to cancel you. You don't yeah. want Salesforce to come along. We've, and had, we've encountered that a few times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's becoming a critical need. And so we would, we would invest in and work with companies that are providing alternative yeah. services. And then I think <clears throat> uh, there's, there's a lot of opportunity at taking the other side of ESG, for instance. ESG is cutting off capital to large segments. And uh, so I own a ammunition manufacturer, for instance, and there's oh, nice. a space that's pretty disfavored by ESG. And we're very well aware of the shortages there. And so there's going to be opportunities there. But going to kind of the the big differentiator for how I approach this, and maybe this even gets to your question about why did we go from positive to neutral? Why did we lose the culture? Is we, we need to be as Christians, and I'll, I'll give a little critique of how conservative business often operates. And maybe it's the conservative mindset. It's sort of a, it's either a sort of negative filter, like we're just going to cut out you know, we're, we, we do business roughly the same way, but we don't support abortion. We don't support, we, we sort of cut out some things that we would see as problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise, we don't really have a, a significantly different view of business. Yeah. Uh, and we, uh, when we do, or alternatively, when people do decide to build something for Christians, it's often overly... Uh, ghettoized in a sense, like you're mm. just, you think of the stereotypical sort of Christian movies mm -hmm. and they're building something that they're not even trying to make something that's sort of competitive nationally. Yeah. It's just for a Christian Or that audience. even honors God. <laughs> no, and it's, it, it, they'll accept a lower quality. Yeah, they'll exactly. accept a lower quality standard. Exactly. Uh, anytime you build a copycat business, you're usually, I mean, conventionally in business, that's just never the recipe for winning. Right. That's a recipe for at best carving out a little niche. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a problem. I think that's a problem in our mentality. And what we need is we need an alternative positive vision. We need a differentiated positive vision. And then we need to look for ways to win. Ultimately, we are, yeah. we, we believe our approach is right. And we believe our approach is better. And if that's the case, why should we not go for the crown? If you're building a business, why should you not go for the dominant business? And where I see the the major opportunities, there's really sort of two approaches. One is Christians as early adopters, conservatives as conservatives and Christians as early adopters. If you're building, let's call it a new software platform, uh, biggest thing you need is often those early customers. It's what builds the network effect. It's what it's what lets the plot, the product take off. It's maybe that first institutional customer that allows you to gain the credibility and keep improving your product. And if you think about it, uh, let's say you have better technology, but you need that. Well, who better to attract than a, a particularly dissatisfied uh, group with the current current lineup? So who's dissatisfied right now? Who's I? Uh, it's going to be conservative Christians. Uh, they are, they dislike the values of the existing ones. They don't trust the existing ones. They'll be willing to take that jump over to a new product or a new platform sooner than other people. That's a huge advantage if you can get those. And that's not new. So we talked about homeschooling earlier. Who were the early adopters of the homeschooling movement when it was sort of riskiest and scariest? Conservative Christians, because they were the most dissatisfied with the status quo. Who were the first people to settle America, really, as a community mm -hmm. and start building that? Mm -hmm. It was, uh, you had the sort of, I, I like to say, you had the sort of libertarian individualists, like the, the trappers and the traders, more akin maybe to the people who are in crypto right now. 
but the first ones to move as a community were deeply religious, mm -hmm. profoundly dissatisfied people like the Puritans or the Quakers. So if you can attract that community, that's often the edge you need to get your business off the ground. And if it's a better piece of, of technology, if it's a better piece of software, there may be a clear path from that point to disrupting the uh, the incumbent, taking over a market segment. So that's that's sort of one of the key angles. Another one I really look at is where do we have a different viewpoint on the world? Uh, mm -hmm. Christianity is not just a different set of values. And I think this is this was perhaps a, a big central mistake of how Christianity was was boiled down to in the uh, in the that positive world era is it was really just a different set of values, positive and maybe neutral as well. Uh, we, uh, we we sort of look at the world the same way, but we we think this is good. You think this is bad. Well, I, I don't think that's true. I think Christianity offers a in many cases a substantially different view of reality. We actually understand important facts that the other side doesn't understand. And it's being very clear during COVID, we're not just people with different values. There's really different realities that the yeah. two different sides are looking mm -hmm. at. Yeah. I would say it, it's it's very important in the technology world when you look at things like AI. AI has all sorts of implications for uh, potential implications for uh, what types of work are automated. And I would say many in Silicon Valley have a uh, they have a very pessimistic view of humanity. They really believe that we're on track to being replaced by AI. Sam Altman of uh, OpenAI is, I, I don't think he would even mind if people were replaced by AI. Uh, they have a negative view of the person, certainly of most people up to and including themselves though. We as Christians have a very different view of people. I believe that there's something special about people that is distinct, that is very different from anything that AI is gonna produce. And uh, they're not gonna go away. And if you are, building a startup that is in this space, you are going to build a very different, you're going to bet on a very different yeah. piece of technology if you believe that people can be replaced by AI and if you don't. And you're going to build, you, you might build software to replace people if you believe people are replaceable. If you don't, you're going to build software to serve and complement people. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're right and they're wrong, this company should be way more successful. It should be the winning player mm. in a space, the company that uh, the, the company that ultimately is complementing people, and that could be the next that could be the next Facebook, the next Google, right? It could be the next trillion dollar company if you're if you're taking a big enough swing and, and you're right about something important where the, where most people in Silicon Valley are wrong. Mm. So there's I believe there's tremendous opportunities, and if we know that we know things the other side doesn't know, then it's it's crazy not to make big business bets on the basis of that. Mm. Excellent. I, and I, I appreciate, you know, the, your point that it, it's about worldview. It's not just a set of values because that your values are, uh, you know, a part of your worldview, but there's much more encompassing, uh, to it than just your values. So I, I appreciate that thought, but that we got, we're coming down to the end of an hour here already. So let, I want you to define what woke economics is, and then we can just kind of finish out on that discussion. So I think the woke, well, so I, woke economics is, uh, there's almost a contradiction there. They're very disconnected from reality. Uh, I would say what it ends up looking like is it ends up looking like managerial bureaucratic administration of, of the business world. So I, uh, it's it, just like you see sort of managerial bureaucratic uh, administration of our government, right? Mm -hmm. Our government is run by bureaucrats. It's mm -hmm. not even run by politicians anymore, really. Uh, 
very evident, obviously, during COVID, where it was these sort of anointed experts who made all the decisions. And in many ways, you've seen that same group of people take over business. Uh, They've taken over the allocation of capital. BlackRock is not even BlackRock is not even something that has a bunch of people with skin in the game where they're even rewarded for the performance they're taking a risk. It's a sun, it's a bunch of people who are involved in allocation of trillions of dollars of capital who really have no downside if they lose money. They have very little upside if they they make money and they essentially move toward allocating capital in sort of formulaic ways. I uh, you essentially come up with some sort of formula you can tweak and allocate across society. Mm. Very much the opposite of entrepreneurial yeah. Uh, economics where a capital allocation decision is it might be a, a bet it's a risk you're taking if you're investing in someone you're taking a risk and you're doing something that can't necessarily be totally justified i mean the best way to think of it is a, a bond or even an apartment you buy a sort of apartment building and it's a very predictable outcome uh you invest in a person and there's a much bigger risk there's a much bigger range managerial economics will always tend to move toward the predictable toward something that can be penciled on a spreadsheet uh, that that non entrepreneurial managers can run, and so I think you I see our you. businesses taken over uh, at all levels. I mean, I think MBAs effectively operate that way. Most MBAs operate that way. Uh, you'll see them operate meaningfully differently than often the sort of person who builds a business like that when that person takes over. Uh, HR departments metastasize inside these companies and really replace. Uh, they really replace any sort of organic human approach to to hiring, to management of teams with very uh, bureaucratized, and this is where the woke comes in. Uh, I think a natural complement to that is is one that is actually leftist in its viewpoint toward the person. And if you think about it, it, it sort of strips. What, what the wokes do is they strip humans of any attachment that would be... Uh, that would, I guess, influence their decisions meaningfully. So if you're a woman and you get pregnant, pay for them to go out and get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Now she's a more predictable person, easier to manage mm-hmm. by spreadsheet, exactly as I described. Mm-hmm. If you have a family, if you have strong family or cultural attachments, those are going to shape your behavior in significant ways. Yeah. The more you can be stripped of those, the more we can turn people essentially into interchangeable cogs. Mm the easier it is to manage hundreds of thousands of people across a global organization, essentially by uh, centrally manage them by spreadsheet. Hmm. So I think wokeness naturally complements this managerial approach to economics by uh, morally justifying this uh, stripping people out of any sort of organic human community or relationship and turning them into the sort of cogs hmm. that, that fit well in a large organization. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I want to ask you, I'm going to, if you think woke economics work, I, I'm of the mindset and I feel like we're witnessing this and, and I want to hear your thoughts on this, but I feel like it's not working. It worked for a minute. Like when it was, when especially woke it was like a very cool thing. It was like the end thing. I feel like we're starting to come out of that now where, where these companies that have tried to go that direction, it's not working financially for them. You know, we just saw this with Bud Light. We saw it. We've seen Target lost like a billion dollars in one week. Uh, you know, even Disney, you know, whatever, like all these big companies that have tried that. It seems like it's not working. Um, and and so I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. And, and obviously we would say it from a biblical worldview, 
it can't work. Um, but just f- economically speaking, like I'd like to hear your your thoughts on that. So I would say it's it's very encouraging pushback we're seeing there. Yeah, I would say it wasn't working even before that, in the sense that Love it. it was. There's been a broad sense across the board of a sort of stagnation, a sort of economic stagnation, stagnation of opportunity. This is really, I think, part of what drove uh, drove the Trump uh, revolution. And if you think about if you think about the ways of allocating capital, right, you think of managerial bureaucrats versus entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. managerial bureaucrats. They can be good at increasing efficiency, right? They can take something over and they can make it run a little more efficiently. Sometimes that's that's. The competent ones. Uh, sure. Increasingly, I think we're seeing a decline of competence as well, and this is what is where wokeness really does metastasize and sort of eat away at its host uh, because it undermines even the competence necessary to make a managerial system efficient. But at best, they can sort of squeeze out some efficiencies. But what it does is it kills the dynamism, right? It kills the entrepreneurial initiative. That bet on a person, if I bet on another person in a way that goes beyond what could be sort of justified exhaustively by resume and spreadsheet, those are the bets that often produce the biggest returns. Those are the ones <laughs> where the, the, those are those are the entrepreneurial, whether it's a bet on another person or that person himself taking a bet uh, as a sort of entrepreneurial uh, innovation. And in many ways, we've seen those die off. And even even in Silicon Valley, I think it was often reduced to a sort of s- things like enterprise software, which is good for sort of efficiencies and good for good for make maybe making a system run slightly more productively, but not that sort of quantum leap in terms of, of a really innovative technology. Uh, even you think of Facebook and what is the algorithm sort of best known for is all they can optimize for because they don't have any objective sense of a, a greater good yeah. is just keeping you engaged and hooked on the page as long mm-hmm. as possible. Like that's a very low level sort of engineering level optimization. And you have an economy where that is all you see across the world. It's all you see on Wall Street. It's what, largely what you see in Silicon Valley. It's what uh, managers, often private equity backed managers do when they take over a company is they they try to squeeze out those efficiencies. And that that runs out over time. And yeah. as you kill the innovation, you kill the dynamism that I think has made the American economy mm. great. And so I, I would say it was never working. Yeah. It, it was it, it was already at the end of its rope in terms of uh, innovation. And the wokeness was destroying even the competence needed to keep it running at, uh, at the pace it had been. Mm. That is a good thought. Well, we're gonna we're winding down here, so I'm gonna we'll bring Nate back then back in on the the after show, and I think maybe maybe we'll get into how do we build positive alternatives to that, um, and maybe get into some AI conversation with that. I think that's a, a good tie in there. So, um, thank you everyone for tuning in again this week, and for for your support. You keep the lights on. You can go to Apologia All Access and um, subscribe um, to that. And we've been. Why don't you tell them about some of the cool content we got? Coming yeah, up. if you guys um, go to Apologia Isaac's Studios. Isaac's in charge of it. That's why I asked him. <laughs> if you go to ApologiaStudios.com, um, sign up for all access. We have a lot of exclusive content. It, it allows you to support us because we're completely supported by you, our, our listeners. Um, but it also gives us a way to bless you, too, for that support. We're always uh, trying to figure out ways that um, you know we can continue to, to not only produce content but good quality content, content that's going to be informative for the the era we find ourselves mm-hmm. in, and um, you know helping equip you, um, the listener, how to engage the culture. Um, but I think it's it shows like this that I appreciate. I mean, there's a lot of things you're saying, Nate. Like I said, that that for me, 
um, I, I need to kind of catch up to as far as kind of how some of these things work. But I know a lot of our listeners are going to be extremely blessed by this type of uh, conversation because it is somewhat an alternate conversation. I, even even being a Christian, these type of conversations you you really don't right. hear often. As far as there's a, there's an alternative approach that's not alternative to Christianity, but it's using the the, the our our Christian heritage using the the authority of scripture to establish a, a worldview type thinking that's yeah. all encompassing. So I think conversations like this are are a blessing, but like I said, with all access, that's what we're trying to do is just um, equip you guys to, to engage the culture at a much more uh, profound level. Um, but, you know, it starts in the home. It starts with Amen. establishing and building godly families, um, standing on the principles of our, our Christian um worldview standing of the principles of of the, the scriptures and i think that's the the way forward but yeah we're going to continue the conversation i think even with the woke economics too um time goes by so fast and so i want to i want to hear kind of more about that we're going to maybe talk about some ai so if you guys want to catch us on the other side on the after show the link is in the description and uh yeah we'll see you on the other side luke yep so uh also i was going to mention i know we're um working on some really cool stuff for end abortion now so mm-hmm. be looking for that carmen who's we got kind of got a skeleton crew going on this week like a lot of people are gone yeah zach conover's in uh where's he atlanta, atlanta. Yeah, yeah doing some stuff for end abortion now conference and, and at the osa national conference and mm-hmm. uh and gabe's on vacation and so carmen's filling in for us today and he's been working on some stuff for end abortion now so uh we also always need your yeah. uh, support you can sign up there uh get your church yeah. signed up with an abortion now We'll throw some and links in the description too for yeah. for you, Nate, where people could kind of find you. Oh yes, and they get in so touch. Where do you want people to find you at? Sure. So uh, I'm most active on Twitter at Nate A Fisher, F I S C H E R. Uh, find my name there, and uh, then New Founding. Uh, you can follow New Founding on Twitter. We also uh, you can go to our website, newfounding.com, and then American Reformer. I think for many people here, mm. particularly interested in the discussions of. Uh, of politics and culture uh, from a Christian perspective, how Christians should think of this, as well as theology, uh, is at AmericanReformer.org. And we'd love to have you following that, signed up. Uh, yeah. Put out a lot of great articles, a lot of up-and-coming young, uh, young or maybe lesser-known uh, authors uh, are producing just some incredible content in American Reformers. So. Okay. Praise God. Well, thanks again, everyone. We will uh, be back next week. So uh, peace out. Peace out.